Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23. The title for this morning's sermon is How to Respond to Persecution. How to Respond to Persecution. Some of you are going to go, it has nothing to do with me today. I pray that God will open our hearts and our eyes to see that it has, because one, it's His Word, but two, that Scripture speaks to us in 2012. Hear the reading of God's Word, starting at verse 23. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were one in heart and soul. And no one said that anything of theirs, uh, anything, any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as there were owners of land or houses, or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought it to the money, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. If you would ask the American, the average American church member, what is needed most for the American church? What is needed the most to bring about change in our nation, to bring about change in the church? What do you think many people would say? In conversations that I w I've had with people, the one thing that I hear is that people, the church needs revival. Man, all we need is we just need a revival, we need a renewal. Man, if God would just come again and bring, blow fresh wind and fresh, fresh fire, and we, we would see tremendous change in our day, in our time, if we would just have revival. The question is, 
how does revival come? And many would say that a strong dose of persecution would do the trick. Persecution. Persecution has always, has always made the church of Jesus Christ stronger. It burns impurity out of the church. It drives away the nominal, the worldly attenders, and separates the church from the world. It drives the church to absolute prayer, drives the church to their knees. It, it helps them realize their desperate need for Jesus Christ above all other things. It causes the, the church to expand numerically, as you even see in China, and per, where the church is persecuted. The church grows numerically. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not up for persecution. For me, uh, what is persecution or, or suffering often is the long lines in a restaurant. It is also what I consider suffering and persecution is driving behind a... How old are you, Pat? I'm, I'm going to say seven... A 23-year-old in traffic. That is suffering. I, I've driven behind Pat. She's, she's okay. I was trying to go older than Pat. That is suffering. Where they can barely see over, over the dashboard and they're driving in the middle of the day. That, that is suffering. It's suffering when things don't go my way. But what we're talking about here today is a totally different kind of suffering. A, a, a religious persecution. When our faith is being tested and tried, and we have to rely on Jesus Christ. So we need to know in advance how to respond to true persecution, how to respond to suffering. And I'm speaking about something that most of us have probably never experienced firsthand. Sure, I'm going to admit that I have faced opposition as a pastor and as a Christian, and that is normal. It is what sets us apart. We have experienced, the elders, the deacons, the leadership of the church have, have faced opposition. But I've never been imprisoned or beaten or had my property taken away because I am a Christian. But these principles also apply to the subject of how to respond in trials in general. I've encountered many American Christians, many even within our church, who do not have an adequate understanding or an adequate theology of suffering. We've grown up in, in the American culture where, you know what, prosperity. It's the American dream you are entitled to this. In fact, if you're in the, the, the 20s and early 30s, they... Time Magazine has labeled you as the entitlement generation. You are entitled to these things. So, when trials hit, as for many of us, an entitlement generation or an entitlement mentality, what happens? Many Christians rage against God. Their faith is deeply shaken rather than submitting to Him. 
They think that they have the right to prosperity, the right to good health, and they grow bitter when trials hit. Our text this morning reveals the response of the early church to persecution. Peter and John had already been arrested. They've been put into jail. They've been threatened by the Jewish leaders because they had healed the, the man, a, a lame man. And they had preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a crowd. And this snapshot of them responding by drawing near to God in prayer, it also shows the care that the church has for its members and for the continuing witness in the church. So this morning, this is going to be our theme that we are going to have. This is our theme. Our theme is respond to persecution by affirming our commitment to God. That's the first thing. How do we respond to persecution? By reaffirming our commitment to God, to His people, and to the work, His work in this world. It teaches us to respond to persecution by affirming our commitment to God, His people, and to His work in this world. Our chief aim as a church is to glorify God by fulfilling the two great commandments. To love Him fervently and to love one another selflessly. That's our two major calls. And so as we look at, at this section of Scripture this morning, I think that we, we need to affirm these, these three priorities. And here is the first of the three priorities. We respond to persecution by affirming our commitment first and foremost and ultimately to God and to none else. Persecution will either drive you away from God or persecution will drive you to God. If it is going to drive you away from God, it is going to make you bitter. It's going to make you angry. It's going to make you want to leave the church. It's going to make you want to leave His people. Or persecution is going to drive you to Jesus Christ, drive you to the cross, and drive you to His people. And there's four ways that we can see how the, the early church affirmed their commitment to God. And here's the first one. We, we affirm our commitment to God through corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. The first thing that you saw this church do was what? They left the Jewish leaders and the elders, and what did they do? They reported back, and they did what? Yeah, they didn't form a committee. They did not form a committee to discuss a, a dialogue of, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to approach these guys? How do we have a really good time with them, make them warm up to us? How can we give it, make it less offensive and, and not call us innocent? This is what we've got to do. Let's pray together. That is their first commitment. They, they were committed to God by coming together in corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. They, their spontaneous, natural response was to pray. Together. Together. When the elders called the church together for corporate prayer once a week or once a month, I want you to make that a priority. It's not just one of the, hey, you know what, we got a little bit better thing going on. I didn't know that this was coming up second Tuesday of every month. 
we affirm our commitment to God by what? Praying together. Make it a priority. There's nothing like the cacophony of voices when we are in prayer together. Praying for God's people, praying for His church, praying that the gospel will go forward in great power, praying for our denomination, praying for our elders, praying for our deacons, praying for lost people. Lord, let your kingdom come. Your will be done. There's nothing like that when we come together. Because this is what corporate prayer does. It reveals our focus. Corporate prayer reveals our focus. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where all the focuses and all the, the requests seem to focus on people's health? Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with praying for Aunt Gertrude's hematoma or her, her bad growth on her leg. There's nothing wrong with praying that way. But if that is the main focus of our prayer time, it reveals that we're too focused on ourselves and not enough on God's kingdom. The remarkable thing about this prayer, if you look at this here in, in chapter 4, is that there is not a word about protection from further persecutions, is there? Not like, okay, God, we're doing your, your stuff here. We're going to pray for a blanket of protection over your church. Because we really like our nice little Christian cul-de-sac here. It's really nice. And we really want to go about this work unpersecuted. No, what happened? There was one comment of, Lord, look upon their threats. So it's like, okay, you see, God, their threats. Jesus taught them to pray how? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Only after that were they to pray for their personal needs. Only after that were they instructed to pray, give us this day our, our daily bread. They, had, they spent five verses hallowing, proclaiming the holiness of God's name before praying that His kingdom would come. And by giving them further boldness and power to proclaim the word. They never get around to praying for their own needs in this prayer gathering. Think about your prayer around your dinner tables. What are they like? That's a corporate gathering of some sort, isn't it? Or your staff meetings, if you're working at a Christian place. What are they like? Oh, Lord, make this go smoothly. Make it really nice and comfortable here. Because that's what we really love. A life about me. We're called to be people who say, Lord, ultimately, the thing that we desire most is that your kingdom come and your will be done. However it is worked out, because God, we, we, we know that you are the God of inexhaustible resources and that your will is ultimately better than our will. And the second thing that, that we can see of what, how our, what our prayer, our corporate prayers tell us about is that our corporate prayers lift our eyes to God's 
mighty and inexhaustible resources. It says here that God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What does that tell you about what they understood of God? It is a simple reminder that the God whom we, we speak about, the God who spoke the universe into existence, is the God who owns it all and He can provide for us whenever we carry on His work. He is able to do far more than we can ask or even that we can think. Read Ephesians 3 verse 20. He can do far more than we can imagine, far more than we can think. Because why? He owns it all. He has created it all. And it is all for His bidding and His work. And when we pray, we go, Lord, we recognize we are nothing. You are the God who created it all. Who are we? But Lord, we know that all the resources of this world, seen and unseen, are there for your bidding. But often we fail to ask in faith, don't we? We fail to recognize that the God who created it all is capable. More than capable. Even beyond our dreams of what could be. Sometimes I think God looks at our, our dreams and He goes, are you serious? That, that, that's it? That metaphor about I own all the cattle on a thousand hills, that, that, that's just a, a metaphor that I own it all. And you're just asking for this? You silly child. There's so much more that I have in store. Our corporate prayers also do this. They bring answers. Our corporate prayers bring answers. God immediately answered by doing what? He shook the place where they were praying. They, the building shook. I'd be a little freaked out at that point. Praying in such a way that the very foundation in the building, the fans, and the, all that starts shaking. We're praying it with such faith that God will answer. Not only did the building shake, but they were filled again with the Holy Spirit. We leak. And we need to be filled on a daily basis. We leak. We also need to understand that God does not always answer so quickly. He knows sometimes that we need to wait longer. Wait on Him longer. But God works through believing prayer. A deep believing prayer. And when we pray, we should not just mumble through a list of needs and then go on our way and forget what we prayed about. We should ask for specific things. Specific people by name. And we should ask that God would advance His kingdom. And we should expect that He would answer it. Maybe not in the way that we designed and we think, but God will answer our prayers. Ultimately, for His kingdom's sake, in His way, in a way that He says, this is best for you and for my kingdom's sake. 
We also, number next, we need to affirm our commi commitment to God by having a high view of God as the sovereign Lord even over evil. We need to have a high view of a sovereign Lord even over evil. The word used to address God comes from a Greek word that's transliterated as a despot. And in the English, it often conveys one who is cruel. One who is mean and just an overlord. But in the Greek, in the Greek it means an absolute master or sovereign lord. This view of God is further underscored in the prayer which affirms the coalition of God of if evil people who did what? They crucified Jesus. But that only accomplished what? What God had sovereignly predestined to occur. I love that. It, it just shows that, listen God, verse 28, both Herod and Pilate, along with all the Gentiles, Gentiles and the people of Israel, they did this to do whatever your hand and your, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had used these things and these circumstances ultimately for what? His kingdom to come and His will to be done. The Bible affirms the absolute sovereignty, the absolute rule of God Nothing happens apart from God's ordaining it to happen. Being in the Reformed faith, we, we have what's called the Belgic Confession. In Article 13, which talks about the, the doctrine of God's providence, says this, We believe that this good God, after He created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to His holy word in such a way that nothing happens in this world without His orderly arrangement. Did you hear that? Nothing happens in this world. So no matter where you stand politically, who you voted for, what you believe about the atrocities that might be happening in third world countries, nothing happens apart from God's orderly arrangement. The circumstances in your life, good, bad, ugly, all happen according to His orderly arrangement. His orderly arrangement. And God is sovereign over all these things. Some try to argue that God foreknows everything, including our salvation, but he did not foreordain things to happen. What happens comes from man's free will. God has no control over that. But this passage clearly refutes that notion, doesn't it? That God is in control. Even over the evil. As Calvin points out, Luke adds the word hand here to make the point that this event was not only governed in a passive way, but also actively by His power. God predestines all things. 
even the evil deed of crucifying his anointed one, Jesus Christ. And yet he is in no way responsible for the evil that men of the men who murdered Jesus. They intended it for evil, and they will be judged according to the evil intent of their hearts. But God sovereignly overruled it to accomplish his eternal purpose, remaining untainted by their sins. What practical difference does that make for us? Why spend time on that? You see, if, if you believe, as some teach, that evil events occur out of, outside of God's sovereign will, and then you really have great cause for fear and no cause for comfort when evil comes your way. Think about that. If you believe that evil events occur outside of God's sovereign will, then you have great cause for fear and no reason for comfort when bad things come your way. All you can say is, it's, man, that's too bad that this one slipped by God. You can only hope that it won't happen again. But you have no guarantee of it. God means well, but sometimes the evil forces are just way too much for Him. What kind of a comfort in trials is that? What kind of a God is that? Rather, it's much better to believe, like the apostles, that God mightily and sovereignly ordains everything that happens. And He orders it according to His wise purposes. If wicked men persecute the church, God predestined it to occur for His glory, for His purposes, and we can submit to it knowing that ultimately God is in control. We also need to affirm our commitment to God by knowing and applying His words. In this section, whoever was praying in this moment quoted the first two verses of Psalm, tw uh, Psalm 2 from memory. They affirmed his belief that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words and he applies this psalm to their current situation. The best prayers are always based, and I know this is hard for you to hear, but it's true, the best prayers are always based on Scripture. That's why I encourage you, especially in our corporate worship or our corporate prayer, our second Tuesday time, Pray with the Bible open. Quote Scripture as you pray. Applying it directly to our present situation and needs. But we won't be able to apply God's Word in times of crisis unless we're saturating our minds with His Word on a daily basis. If we know God's Word through a daily time with Him, we'll be able to apply it when we face persecution or trials. We need to also affirm our commitment to God by, by looking to, it, to and imitating Jesus as God's holy servant. Twice this prayer refers to Jesus as God's holy servant. This Greek can also mean, in the Greek it can mean also son, 
but it's probably translated as servant in this section. It's used in Isaiah 53, where he was described as the suffering, suffering servant who bore our sins. The idea of seeing ourselves even as God's servant is important when we face persecutions. We are not God's privileged ones. That God says, okay, you are now exempt from the tax of sin. You are my servants, my, my doulos, my bond servants. You are my servants. And none of us seem to like that idea. We are his servants. We are, we are his slaves called out of this world to do his work, to do his bidding. And the idea of seeing, seeing ourselves as God's servants is extremely important because slaves do not expect to receive wonderful treatment, do they? Think about it. Slaves don't get brought into a situation and just say, man, I, I can't, I am so glad about this because it's going to be a cakewalk now. Slaves had no rights. They were expected to re render absolute submission and unconditional obedience to their masters. The owner had the right of life or death. He could give away a few meager possessions that the slave owned if he chose to, and the slave had no right whatsoever to complain. The owner could command the slave to do absolutely unreasonable things in the slave owner's name. Do this. What? Are you serious? Do this in my name. It seems unreasonable to you, but do it. And a slave would do it. If carrying out the command resulted in the slave's death, that was too bad. The slave had to obey without question or complaint. But here is the beauty in our case. We know that our master, our sovereign Lord is what? He's not malevolent, is he? He's benevolent. Our God is good. God is good and has our eternal welfare in mind whatever he commands us to do but we need the mindset of God's holy servant Jesus who came not to do his own will but the will of the Father even if that meant death on the cross in a time of persecution or trial we must respond by reaffirming our commitment to our Lord and Master, we need to rem remember ourselves that we are not our own, are we? Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That you're not your own. But you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter what, what, that should be our only comfort in life and death, that I'm not my own. That ultimately, my life and my welfare are in His hands. And I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not even a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things 
work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I love that. So often as a kid growing up in a Reformed tradition, I, I had the first section of that memorized. That I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I, man, I'm not my own. I got that. But here, this end part is extremely critical. Because we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, because we belong to Him, we are assured of that work. And that assurance of the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts, our minds, our lives for eternity's sake makes us wholeheartedly willing. Wholeheartedly willing. Wholeheartedly willing. Do I have to say it again? Wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. So no, no matter what kind of persecution is coming to you, because of your assuredness of the work of Jesus Christ, knowing that you belong to a sovereign, benevolent master who has purchased you, taken you out of the kingdom of darkness, brought you into a kingdom of light, because you know that he is good, you wholeheartedly are willing to live for him from now to forevermore. Wherever he calls you to do, whatever he calls you to do, whatever the circumstances in you say, Lord, take me. I am yours. If you are calling me to the slums of Mokina, wherever that is, or Frankfurt, to the rich, God, take me there to do that. If it is calling me to go with the Camiolas to Joss, Nigeria, where the, our life and death is always in the, held in the balance, because we don't know when Boko Haram is going to come and explode our compound, Lord, I am wholeheartedly ready to follow after you for your kingdom's sake, your will be done. Whatever it is, wherever it is that God is calling you wholeheartedly live in such a way. No matter what your circumstances are, we live in a different way. We must glorify God in our bodies even if it means, even if it means martyrdom. It's awfully quiet. Can I at least get an amen there? <laughs> amen. I'm not sure I'm convinced about that. The second way that we need to respond to persecution is by affirming our commitment to the Lord's people. The apostles were part of a united, caring, generous fellowship. As soon as they were released, they went back with their companions and they shared about what the elders and chief priests had to say. Luke records that the whole congregation was of one heart and one soul. They were marked by unusual, absolutely crazy generosity and care for one another. And there are three elements that you can see here. That the Lord's people should be committed to community. 
community. They had a corporate mindset. Corporate doesn't sound so good because we automatically think of business and corrupt corporations. But they had a mentality, a corporate mentality. Then their first instinct was to share with one another. It wasn't gossip. It wasn't belittling. But they shared with one another what happened and this led to corporate prayer as we've seen. They did not view the church as most Americans do as a an individualist kind of thing. Well, it doesn't really work for me. The church has kind of ticked me off, so I'm going to kind of be a part and not really do my, be a part of that. They needed each other. It breaks my heart when people leave the church. No matter what has taken place internally, when people leave the church and never come back to it. The bride of Christ has been purchased by the blood of Christ and engrafted us into Christ to be a part of His community. If you are not a part of a local church, you are missing a critical piece of your Christian faith. You need Christian community. And I'm not talking about a casual sense of, uh, there's Tennille, we work in the same place, and well, whenever two or three are gathered, you know, Jesus is there kind of mentality. No, 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 no. We need the body of Christ. We need the church. The ones who are called out to do His bidding. The, the ecclesia. We need the church. Of course, there are times when a person needs to stand alone, even, even from the Christian crowd. But we need to develop we, as a church, need to develop this sense of community, of belonging to a body of Christians without whom we are, are not complete. We need to have a network of brothers and sisters that we immediately want to get together when difficulty hits so that we can share and we can pray together. My prayer is that as it hits the fan for us, as in the good times and the bad times, as, as Missio Dei churches, we experience our lives separately, that immediately we feel deeply connected that when life gets rough or life gets... we've kind of hit this in our, our faith journey with Christ. When it gets rough or it gets high, that we feel the need for community. Because we have a commonality in Christ. We have a commonality. There's a, a special unity that when we get together, we long, we long for our Sunday mornings. Long for it. That if there's friends and family in, in town for the weekend, you don't say, hey, you know, well, we're just going to go hang out with them and because, you know, it's... it's we don't want them to feel awkward or uncomfortable. You, your life depends on meeting together. Your mind wants to be fed. Your heart needs to be rejuvenated. Michael Horton calls uh, our corporate gatherings, Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, an opportunity for resalinization, to be resalted with the gospel. Be re-reminded because we quickly forget. 
But we also see in this commitment to the Lord's people that the Lord's people should be committed to unity. And this is kind of one of those, those terms that in our, our day and our age where people kind of miss out what really is unity. They lifted up their voice to God in one accord. They were one, of one heart and one soul. We see that in 432. And unity does not mean that we all have to look alike and think alike. Thank God. We don't all have to come from the same socioeconomic kind of situation. In fact, there should be diversity and richness in that. God made us all individuals, and we will express ourselves differently on doctrines that are not essential. We may disagree, although we should be striving to grow into the unity of faith that comes from a deeper knowledge of Christ. We should also recognize that if someone does not truly know Christ as Lord and Savior, that we all belong to the same spiritual family. Sorry. If someone does know, truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and has a little bit different take on their practice, say baptism for instance, that we need to recognize that we all do belong to the same family. It's the same family. The Lord's people should also be committed to generosity. You see how that that whole chapter ended? The Lord's people should be committed to generosity. John Calvin points out that unity of heart and soul is the root and sharing of personal belongings is the fruit. Being of one heart and one soul and one mind is the root, our grounding. And out of that grounding comes what? The fruit of generosity. It's not teaching communism. It's not teaching socialism. It's not encouraging a welfare to the lazy or irresponsible person who wants to mooch off the body. In fact, Paul, Paul teaches that if a person will not work, what does he say? Shouldn't eat. I could go on a little political tirade right there, but I'm not. I'll let you go yourself. If a person is not willing to work, you should not eat. Persecution often strips us of a a materialistic focus and it it also helps us remember that things do not last and that God's word instructs us that those who are rich we're, we're in the top 2% just so you, so you know of, of the world top 2% of the world Americans those of us who are rich to be generous and be ready to share if we see the church as a family and members of Christ's body, then we are more inclined to obey this command. And you may not be aware of the fact of this fact, but our deacons have oversight of a of a, a benevolence fund, a mercy fund that is first administrated to those who are in need within our body, and then it is administrated to those outside of our family. 
who are in need. We have a benevolence fund and we want to be generous. And it's not part of our, our regular tithes and are not our regular offerings. It is in these baskets during communion that we remember the goodness, the richness of Christ's grace towards us that we give back. Generosity, benevolence. Because we have a benevolent God, we give back. If you have a question about that, talk to John Meskus, talk to Emily, talk to, talk to Todd. How can you further support the benevolence program? Because you know what? We give away regularly. In fact, this week we wrote another check. Lastly, when we face persecutions, we need to reaffirm our commitment to the Sovereign Lord. We need to reaffirm our commitment to the local church. And we need to also respond to persecution by affirming our commitment to God's work in the world. The apostles didn't run away from persecution. They didn't form monasteries inside the well-fortified walls of safety and security, which often happens in our churches, right? Well, we're going to kind of have this little safety bubble. It's a kind of like a, a Christian uh, safety zone. They did not fall into self-pity. They did not fall into revenge. They didn't fall into fear. They responded by praying for more boldness in their witness. And in verse 433, just, just look at it. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was among them, was upon them. They prayed with great, for great power, and for great power, and they continued testifying. They were witness. They continued to be powerful witnesses in their place. The resurrection of Jesus was the center of their witness. And no doubt the love of the church was seen in its generosity and the powerful miracles that God granted to them. And it opened up the door for more opportunities for witnessing. But the point is their focus was not on them. Their focus was not on them, but rather on what God wanted them to do to extend His kingdom through their witness, even if it cost them further Persecution, persecution, which it did. A few short paragraphs later, persecution exploded. We see that with Stephen. Poof. And Paul was there seething, holding their coats, wanting to persecute the church. And he was sent out we ever catch opposition because of our witness, we must follow their example of not retreating. Whenever we trials come our way, if problems, if there's glitches in what we feel that God is calling us to, we don't retreat and say, say oh, done, uncle, I give it up. We don't retreat. Because honestly, that's exactly what Satan desires. 
He wants us to give up. He wants us to draw back. If He can get us to fall into self-pity or to fear, our witness will stop. But the Lord has us here to be His witness of His death and His resurrection to those who are in desperate need for a Savior. I read of a 19-year-old Christian girl in China who was beaten and thrown into a, an absolutely filthy cell. It was dark, but from the smell she knew that the slimy filth on the floor was human excrement. There was no bed. There was no chair. She had to sit and sleep in this filth. She squatted down so that as little of her bleeding body as possible would touch the floor and she silently gave thanks to the Lord that she was worthy to suffer for Him. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Our worst persecution and suffering right now is the heat that you feel. And some choose not to worship because it's too hot. She asked God for wisdom and strength not to get out of this terrible place, but that whatever he put her, wherever he put her, she would continue be, to be able to preach the gospel. One day as she, was, she quietly sang a hymn, the Lord impressed on her, this is to be your ministry. She thought, I am all alone. Whom can I preach to? Suddenly an idea came to her. She stood up and she called for the guard. And she said this, Sir, can I do some hard labor for you? The guard looked at her with contempt and mingled with surprise. No one had ever made that kind of request before. And she said, Look, this prison is filthy. Let me go into the cells and clean up the excrement. Just give me some water and a brush. Soon she found herself on her hands and her knees cleaning and preaching to people who had lost all hope of ever seeing another human being who did not come to beat them. When they realized that they could have eternal life as God's free gift, they repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. Soon, through the ministry of this woman, the entire prison believed in Jesus Christ. The warden was furious. He gave her a sheet and told her to write out a confession of her crimes against the revolution. She wrote out the plan of salvation so that the warden and others heard about Christ. We may never have to suffer for the gospel as she did. But we should follow her example. If we face persecution, we should respond by reaffirming our commitment to a sovereign God. We should reaffirm our commitment to our fellow saints 
to one another. And we should be unstoppable, unstoppable in our commitment to the Lord's work in this world of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing. Miss Uday Church, we cannot be the American church. We cannot be the American church. If you're looking for a comfortable place to rest your hat, to come for worship, and maybe you get a little bit of liturgical, feel good vibes, or singing some good songs, or you like these people, you're here for the wrong reason. We are called together under the banner of Christ in the good, in the bad, the ugly, to be faithful to His call because He has purchased us with a price. My encouragement this week is to examine your lives. Truly, examine your lives in the light of the price that was paid. He has redeemed you with His blood. Examine your lives. And as He calls you, go. Go confidently. With the power of the gospel. And the security of God's plan. That He works all things together. For the good of those that believe in Him. All things. Wherever He calls you to go. Wherever He plants you. Go and go boldly. With the good news of Jesus Christ. All things work together. Your poverty, your pain, your death, your life, all those things work together for His good. Reflect in this dark and broken world the beauty and the power, the light of the gospel. Shine as a city on the hill. The good news of Jesus Christ. Lock arms with your brothers and sisters. Fight against your individualistic, I can do it on my own mentality. Lock arms with the bride of Christ and work hard and fulfilling two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second is like it of your neighbor as yourself. Prepare our hearts for communion. A picture of God's grace that's been poured out to us. That for those of us who fail, which is all of us, that there's grace again today. Our clinging to the cross, clinging to His work, knowing that He is going to continue to work in us again today and empower us by His Spirit to accomplish His work. But before we do, let's pray.